Hello and welcome to Minding Your Mind, all about your mind, how it works, mental illness and mental health. Uh, With me is Professor Ian Hickey, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. I'm James O'Loughlin. There's been much progress, happily, in the last decade in how our society views and responds to mental health and mental illness. And today, we're going to discuss what progress there's been in the workplaces of corporate Australia, in business and in not-for-profits, and in what steps have been taken by them to become more aware of the mental health of their people and to take care of the mental health of their people. Samantha Moston, AO, is one of Australia's leaders in the corporate and not-for-profit sector. I'm going to say this quickly because she's done so much. She's held executive and board positions in business, sport, the arts, diversity, youth, employment, sustainability, Indigenous issues, women's rights, safety. There's probably an industry she hasn't worked in. Um, I, I can't quite find what it is. In 2012, PM Julia Gillard appointed Sam one of Australia's first mental health commissioners, and they were tasked with helping to improve mental health in the community and specifically the workplace. So, in the age of COVID, when work, employment, education, and training opportunities have all been disrupted, particularly for many women and young people. We're always asking, what can the government do? But today we ask, what can be done by business? What can be done by the non-government sector? So welcome, Sam. Thank you so much for joining us. You're a keen observer of the health and well-being of our national community. Uh, 18 months into the pandemic, how do you think we're going? Well, thanks, James. And I'm really, really thrilled to join you. And I love your podcast. So um, um, I can't wait to hear more episodes coming out of this. Um, what's my take on the moment? Well, as you said, we we are every day watching and hoping that government can get certain things right around vaccination, quarantine, you know, just suppressing a virus. Um, but I like to step back and think about what we're all seeing in in our lived experience of COVID. And I see that through a couple of lenses. Um, if I start with your introduction around workplaces, um, there is no doubt that one of the the most important topics that board of directors of companies um, discuss as we meet virtually um, regularly, it is the state of the mental health um, of our workplaces through COVID. The, the issues of well-being and, and mental health have rocketed up into not just a governance issue for boards, but as a, a really specific conversation about how people are doing. And whilst much has been said about how great it is to have flexible work practices and how that might um, give us a sense of the future of work, in fact, boards and senior executives are looking a lot at the big downsides of people working alone, not connecting with people, lacking what Ian Hickey would talk about as those social connections. And so I think we're spending as much time as governors of companies on that topic alone as we are with any of the other financial and other risks that we're dealing with um, and trying to understand what it will take in a virtual environment or a lockdown environment to ensure that the workplace is a very safe place, not just physically but psychologically. Um, And that's a new set of conversations and skills. Let's zoom out a bit, though. Over the past two decades, business responses to mental health issues has has changed in a good way a lot, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the workplace issues for 
for many companies changed with the imposition of duties about the physical safety. So the health, work health and safety legislation that ended up with duties on directors and leaders around their criminal and civil liability certainly focused the attention of many about what the duties were to provide a safe workplace. But I reckon in the last decade or more, that has significantly shifted to psychological safety and mental health. So you see a lot of really good employers taking on that responsibility to create relationships with great mental health practices, um, to engage with those that understand what other things that help us be healthy in our workplace. Lots of use of things like Smiling Mind um, as an app to provide to to workers, anything that helps people understand their their better mental health. But it's become a very significant significant part of how companies think about their how the company is going. And, and there's a bit of, uh, I mean, they're concerned for their people, but there's some self-interest there too. They've become aware of the cost of, of mental health and, of and I guess they're being driven partly by that. Yeah, those costs. And we know that the uh, workers' compensation costs for mental health issues are far greater than they are for the physical injuries sustained at work. They go on for much longer, they're difficult to analyse um, and they cause great distress to people who are suffering them, of course. So, no, that has focused the attention. But I, I'd say... Um, more so than any time I can remember, and certainly it was a focus of the National Mental Health Commission where Ian and I both served under Alan Fell's leadership, was to take all the data from the community aspects of mental health into workplaces and ask for leadership to sit alongside those more structured government processes that were trying to assess the nation's mental health. So, Sam, you've raised the issue, which I think is you know, really important, the way in which workplaces now are proactive in trying to create better workplaces, not just protecting against injury in a particular way. Are there particular examples that you'd like to give of that not just protecting against risk, but actually promoting the mental health and wellbeing, which does promote productivity? Are there good examples as far as you're concerned of where that stands out with the organisations you've been working with? Yeah, and I think, Ian, we have to be careful not to say all organisations do this and every company does it. I think there's a big organisations, big publicly listed organisations do this well. So if they're on the share market and have investors looking at them, there's another pressure coming that says under new environmental, social and governance principles of investment, directors and chief executives are now asked, how do you account for the mental health of your organisation? And not just from a risk point of view, but from a productivity and general uplift in the organisation. So it's not all organisations and it's not all companies. But for those that do it really well, this is a front of mind discussion. And I think it sits alongside the whole notion of inclusion and belonging. So the the most recent advances, I think, in workplace, um, great, great workplaces is to analyse how people feel about whether they belong in that in that workplace. Um, there's uh, Rhonda Brighton Hall is a pioneer in doing this assessment where she's, she's leapt from us measuring the engagement of our people in workplaces to measuring whether they feel that they belong. And I think there's a strong correlation between the notion of cultures of organisations where people belong and their state of mental health and those where they feel they can't be their true selves and where they suffer a variety of pressures. It might be bullying, it might be exclusion, it might be miscommunication, but where mental health is not treated seriously and where the whole person is not encouraged to come to work. And I think we're. I think COVID will press forward on the issues of what does it mean for organisations to create environments where people who come to that workplace actually belong and are included. Um, and I think that's a pathway to a better discussion on mental health. 
Sam, I do a, a lot of work working with companies, helping them be more innovative. And uh, almost every company has the word innovation somewhere in their mission or values statement. But you get down three and the lead leadership team is being innovative, working out what they have to change. But you get down three or four levels in some organisations and they say, if I had an idea, no one would care. If I had a new idea. I'm just wondering if... Yes, at but board level, there is a greater awareness of mental health and there are programs being rolled out and look at our all the lovely stuff we've written on our website about it. Is it getting right down through the entirety of big organizations? Well, if I'm honest with you, James, um, I'd say no. I mean, this is this is this, yeah, this is new yeah. territory. So I think you know, senior people spend a lot of time on this. Many senior people are challenged by this, and we're not taught how to be leaders to manage this. So I think one of the things we've got to be really mindful of is who's sitting in those positions of authority and power in organisations where they can build a competency in an organisation to deal with this. Now, when it's been just um, old white guys running places, that's had challenges. And I, you know, I say that respectfully because I work with a lot of really great old white guys. But you know, what we've seen Thank you is... Thank you for that. You're working <laughs> with two of them now. <laughs> I'm just looking at you and, and I admire you both <laughs> deeply. But you know, if we're going to solve these issues, our leadership teams and then all the way down to the organisation have got to look like our communities. So more women, more people of colour, more diversity, more pe- people who think differently and come from a different um, a different background. And it's those environments that are naturally innovative because they're drawing on a set of skills and talents that when you bring them together, you get a real sense of innovation rather than just that, that stated aim that you spoke about. Um, so these things are all linked, but I think we've got a long way to go. And that's what Rhonda and her team at, at her business would say, unless you're mapping and measuring whether everyone in the organisation feels that they belong then you are not dealing with this as the, the issue at the heart of you know what, how you take a story of good mental health and inclusion across your organisation. So Sam, I just love the segue there across to diversity and uh, the real other parts of your work with Diversity Australia etc, how central this is and I hear a lot of pushback a lot of the time about what people see as new identity politics making us more separate by each identifying with a different thing. It seems to me what you've been doing, actually, is the point you were just making, is sense of belonging means that people can be themselves within an organisation. So I wonder if you could tell us about your work with Diversity Australia and how important this really is. It's not about dividing us all up. It's actually making sure that we're all included and represented so we can have a sense of belonging, whether that's within a company, whether it's within our community, whether it's within a sporting organisation, and how central that actually is to effective social functioning. Um, yeah, and no, where to start. So um, I no longer serve on the board of Diversity Council Australia, but I did for a long time. And the current chair is Ming Long, um, who speaks about this a lot, and the chief executive is Lisa Anise. And what Lisa and the board, led by Ming, are really clear about, and they have membership of over 800 businesses across the country, that diversity isn't um, and inclusion is not a game around identity politics. And, and I, I really, I find it really upsetting to hear the notion of inclusion described as as, as identity politics. It's a, it's a binary way of looking at the world um, and we don't operate like that. And so what the work that the Diversity Council does, the work that great practitioners on inclusion and belonging do is 
really hone in on this. What have we been failing to do in this country that recognises the unique capability and the skill and I guess the intersectional things we all bring to any workplace or any community we're in? So I'm not just um, a white woman. I'm a mother. I like certain things. I follow certain football teams. It's the Swans, by the way. Um, I have particular sets of interests. And so when I turn up on a board, if I don't feel that I can deploy my full set of interests and skills, you know, I'll feel an element of me that is not being respected and included. And, you know, I, I say that from a very privileged point of view. And imagine organisations where the diversity of the individual, whether it's cultural, social, they've come from, I mean, we, we have a, I think we don't talk enough about the class structure in Australia, that if you come from um, a working class background in this country, where there was a time when the public system, the public education system, and the way to rise was actually clear, we know now that, that postcode analysis would say that there are real issues and pressures on people who come from low income house households and those people are in our organizations and often ignored their their lived experience ignored and they watch a group of people um, who are privileged and and have access to all sorts of of things that come with wealth and privilege um, and see that the organization doesn't actually account for the full wealth and breadth of our of of who we are as as human beings so I've gone pretty wide there I guess but it's you know what what is important around whatever the Diversity Council of Australia work is the work of analysing what it truly means to um, to honour our full diversity in our workplaces, in our communities. We've got to be better at this in this country because we are dividing at the moment, particularly through COVID, and we see that in Sydney at the moment with the way we've kind of divided communities around where COVID is and the um, the people in those communities. And we've I don't think we're doing that at all well. Sam, one of the themes in your work really is has has been creating communities and Ian is always banging on about the importance of being connected to various communities and how beneficial that can be to mental health, being socially active and and sometimes needing to actually go out and and find that yourself rather than waiting for it to come to you. Can we use your work in sport as an example of that? I guess we've just seen a couple of high-profile examples of uh, two of the world's leading sports women, Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka, uh, having mental health issues that have uh, led to them from withdrawing from a um, I think it was Wimbledon and and the gymnastics at the Olympic Games. Tell us some of the work you've done as a case study about forming communities in in sport. Thanks, James. And I think it's really important that you've called out Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka. I'd say the kind of Australian equivalents from a different perspective might be Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame. We're seeing these incredibly brave younger women bringing forth to the general public in very you know, they're very private details, whether it's of mental health or other experiences, and they are teaching us about what it really means to be strong about these conversations. Um, and so, if I, but if I return to the sport analogy, there are two things where I've seen communities develop, um, and I think are, are good examples of what we need to do more of. One is the creation of the AFL Women's League, and you know, I was lucky enough to be on the AFL Commission for a number of years as the first woman on that commission. And when I first joined in two thousand and five, I was um, approached by a number of women around the country who had always played footy, who had played footy at, at the elite level but had never been able to deploy their game in the way the men had because there was no national competition recognised by the league. And so they were asking to be included as 
participants and elite athletes, but there was no pathway for them. And so they felt that they were outside the football community. Even though they loved footy, they played the game, they were they were kept at bay. So um, over quite a few years, we worked very, very hard to develop a new community of women players and to eventually launch the AFL Women's League in 2017. And what we've seen with the respect now paid to those women athletes is the connections of new community members and new new community around footy and sport that's engaging with a broader set of people who love the game, who are getting a bit tired of the way the game was formed around the around the blokes. Um, and I'd say that the mental health of those women is teaching the men a lot about the strain of being elite athletes. They talk about it openly. They bring their whole selves to the game, whereas the men have become much more of a manufactured product. And it's almost impossible to find men who will talk about the state of their mental health if they're in the elite level or their personal issues. And when they do, they get slammed by a media who wants them to be perfect, to be heroes and to be so muscular in their response that when they do start to say things like – during COVID, I'm going to go and see the birth of my children rather than go to, you know, stay in a yeah. bubble and go to a game. The footy, the footy committee says, how dare you? Your, your duty is to the game and your club. And these younger men are saying, I think, because they've seen what's happened in the women's league, actually, I'm going to tell you what's important to my mental health and my sense of my community. It's seeing the birth of my child and being with my, my partner. So that's been a really important new thing I think that's occurred that's teaching us about how better sport can be. But the other one, um, I guess, is... Um, at the end of the Rio Olympics, a group of businesswomen led by Christine McLaughlin, who's the chair of um, of um, a number of big companies in Australia, she and I sat down and met a number of the young women athletes who came back from Rio who had medaled, often gold medals, but had come back into a community which um, welcomes back I love back that them. verb, by the way. The, you only hear it every four <laughs> years. I guess you hear it at the Commonwealth Games every two years. Meddled, yeah. a, a word that is never used in any other context apart from Olympic or Commonwealth Games. We go nuts during this fortnight, don't we? I mean, we just become different people. Um, so, I yes, don't. So, you don't. So okay. I'm a well, cynic. I'm, I don't at all. Has none of the recent days got you excited? Has the has oh, um, you look, I, Jessica Fox I like not s- got you? <laughs> Look, I, whenever I get excited about an athlete, then I then it's immediately dampened by the fawning, obsequious uh, Aussie way the commentators interview them, and I and I always think, oh, I feel sick. No, I, look, I, but I love the actual beauty of the athlete of the athletic uh, achievement. Well, I mean, you started this question around Simone Biles. I mean, we were all watching. If you were gripped at all, watching the gymnastics program, and, and I was. See, yeah, good. All right, well, then you saw Simone. Step out of, you know, mid-event, step out, talk to her teammates, then talk to the world and go to a press conference to tell America particularly, but the world, that she was stepping down because of the mental health pressures that she was facing, knowing that there would be a media storm of a kind we can't imagine in this country. I mean, she was playing on a global stage, as Naomi was. Um, and what and it went you know it it went it split straight away um, to people hating what she had done and said she was she was giving up on her nation um, and probably all the things you don't like about sport. But then what has happened in the days since is this remarkable turnaround where people have said thank goodness for Simone Biles and of course made the distinction between her experience of uh, as being an elite athlete with all of the appalling behaviour going on in the gymnastics program over years that was sexually assault-driven and had shocking things that no one would talk about. And there she is on the biggest stage on earth saying this stuff that focuses us to think about how important our mental health is and does it in a way that gets respect. So I think that's important. And so if I go back to what, what um, Christine and I and a group of other women did on the return of a number of elite women athletes from Rio, was we reached out to them to say, how, it must be hard to be you, because unlike our 
uh, obsession with men and heroes returning. There isn't a natural pathway for the rest of their careers and life post-sport. So we thought there was a gap there that we could help fill. And quickly we met women from the Matildas, from the Australian cricket side, and realised that they are out there doing remarkable things on behalf of our country all the time. And there is no... You know, their, their, their sports do a good job, but no specific mentoring and support. So we now do that with with those great women. Of course, going through COVID, it meant we could bring them together um, to work on, on their support in lockdown as they prepared for the Olympic Games um, and their national representation. So I think that helped with the general state of a community of women supporting our elite athletes without assuming that everything was okay. Um, again, you know, I think you go out and create communities, um, but I don't just do it in sport, James. I hope people don't think that's what I spend my time doing. <laughs> no, but the relevant thing I think for all of us is is creating communities and, you know, what we can learn from you about about how you actually go, go, go through the process of doing that, Ian. Yeah, so just the only knock-on or knock-down effect, if you like. I want to go back to the AFLW because this is the most marvellous example, and here's a personal example. Uh, my honourable daughter, number four, who was the most fabulous ruckman playing in Sydney up until the age of 12. I don't have ruckman or a ruck person. I'm not sure about this, Sam. Anyway, for the Moore Park Tigers, who was the Richmond Tigers come to Sydney and having had uh, another son pay for the Newtown Swans, the AFL always had this thing about community engagement and connection with families. But interestingly... Uh, for my daughter, number four, is sing from Sons, that stopped at about age 12. And it was only with the rebirth of AFLW that, in fact, all of my daughters said that's the best thing that's ever happened. And, honourable daughter number four, has gone back to playing AFL again at the college level because given a rebirth of the thing, you need to see the elite bit to say, actually, that's us and we can connect with that. An issue we've discussed another time, because for many young women in particular, in terms of regulation of their mood and their identity, actually being able to play those physical games throughout adolescence and everything else, and, and different kind of body image and different sort of perceptions, really important, not just a stereotyped kind of model kind of thing in a particular way. Now, I know that Sam knows about this because I know that she has learned to tackle, actually. <laughs> <laughs> through her connection well, with the Sydney Swans. And the expression, I just want to say the expression of this, the ways of being different in the world, and particularly for young women, through sport and through physical contact and particularly through the adolescent period that we've discussed, James, you, if you don't have those role models, if you don't see that, if you don't think society can be that, and this is really a great example where Sam and colleagues have created that. AFL, I think it'd be fair to say, pretty men, pretty blokey, pretty stereotypic kind of way. Do you, Sam, you want to tell us about your great tackling? <laughs> well, I think you're being overly kind there. And I'll just let you know, you would describe your daughter as playing in the ruck. So she doesn't need to be a ruck right. man or a ruck woman. She's just playing Thank in you. the ruck. She's, you know, Thank, you. There's, Thank you. There's a way Very of thinking good. about how we change the Very language. Um, and I would encourage anyone that wants to really understand this phenomena to get Oh, Sam. I thought you were going to say, I would encourage anyone who really wants to understand tackling. No, 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 no. I, I will come back to tackling in a moment. But um, I think if if you haven't read Sam Lane's book called Raw, which analyzes the the origins of this game and, and speaks with ten of the the pioneering players in the game and shows the just the incredible diversity of those young women culturally, age, body type, personal experience, how they came to footy, it tells you a bit about what you're saying, Ian, that these were all women who had been excluded. And they, they didn't have role models. They didn't have women operating at the highest. Their heroes were all men. They, they could only attach to men players because that was the system that was in play for them. Um, so you're right. These are This is a remarkable birth of, of women as those role models. But as for tackling, I, I made the comment once that if I had had this opportunity as a young woman, because I did play a lot of sport, I wanted to know what it felt like 
to be like a bloke and throw my full body in a tackle on someone. I know how to do that really well because I think that must be the most thrilling thing you know, for, for people who like to know what the power of their body is. And women are often protected against that. Our sports Can I just typically- say, as, as, a, as a bloke who grew up in a school with lots of sport, I never wanted to know <laughs> that. I was always much too scared to want to <laughs> well, experience I, that feeling. I've got to say, I wanted to be able to sing as well. I wanted to be able to play the piano as well. I wanted There were lots of artistic things I also wanted to do. But for a lot of women, to not know what the actual potential of our bodies are compared to men was something I was intrigued by. So I just asked a number of guys at, at the Swans if they would could show me, but I am way too old. I'm in my mid-50s. So I didn't actually ever land a tackle, Ian. I just I sought out the advice on how you would go about it and I watched the thrilling way in which women do use their bodies, not just in AFLW, but across the sporting scene, just as we do in any environment where we're allowed to be our full selves, that we are remarkable. And, you know, we've had a problem in this country that we've, we don't have a very gender equal world and that's part of I think part of the mental health profile is so many women you know we have we 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 rate number one in the world for women's education on the World Economic Forum um, data and we're number 70th in the world on women's economic participation and progress and I raise that Ian for you on the basis if you think about the mental health of women who are increasingly regarded as having to take all the care burden that's increased through COVID. They're highly educated. They're often in the segregated industries of care that are underpaid, um, underregulated. Uh, they have a lot of insecurity about them with not a lot of career paths. We get this very segregated world in which men achieve and get big salaries and big careers. And women, um, smart women, have to put together careers um, in a different way and then end up today, Australia's most likely person to be homeless over the age of 70 is a woman. And it's a woman who's probably had a good education, but she's ended up with no superannuation, no career, you know, a career that doesn't, isn't the equivalent of men. And I don't think we sort of attach enough value to this gender equality and what we've done in this country um, about that gender segregation in work that goes to the essence of who we are in our communities. So I guess another way of looking at why we've got to do we treat gender equality yeah. so seriously uh, across every domain. Is a, is a micro way of looking at that macro thing you said this, I'm also in my mid-50s, and many women of my age have mentioned to me that there is a time in their life where they feel they become invisible in a cafe, in a restaurant. Remember when we used to be allowed to go to them? Um all, all over the place. And I've, I've never felt invisible, not yet. Maybe I will later. But is that a, a micro example of the macro t- trend you were, you were discussing? I think so. I think it's part of a broader story of, um, of gender norms and, um, and who we value in a community. And many women who go into their 50s would feel that way. Um, they typically begin to be regarded as the, um, they were the caregivers for their for their children if they had children, and suddenly they're now the grandparents who are giving care again as they're older to a, a to their children who for whom a system doesn't exist to deal with childcare properly. So they're doing more and more work that's done in the care professions that we don't value, we don't we don't see them, um, and then we hear about them again when we criticise things like aged care or disability care and talk about the workers who've spread the COVID virus because they've had to go to multiple um, sites to do their work. And the reason for that is there is no workforce plan for the 70% of women who, who are in those environments because these are casualised, under-respected professions. Um, and so they're invisible again there. So we, we I think we have – there's lots of potential here to recognise women and, and to recognise men, but we do become invisible in many respects um, and we also become 
very visible as the primary childcare providers in our mid-20s to 30s um, as workplaces begin to assume that we're going to be leaving the workforce to be the primary carer. So there's there's lots of stages of our lives where we, we take on roles that remove us from the public eye. I mean, they're, they're very general comments. I mean, they, there's a lot that sits behind that and, um, yeah. and there's, a, there's a lot of other really great stories. But I think generally speaking, this is why having a, mm. um, a purposeful approach to gender equality in this country really matters. Yeah, Ian? Well, it's not just gender equality, it's the future economic and mental wealth of our country. So a lot of discussion actually, again, put into focus by COVID is what do we value? When economic trouble is happening, a lot of the work I'm associated with was how difficult that was for women and young people, but because of the industries that women were in, and of course the industries that we rushed to support in construction, in the trades, in other areas, and small businesses are typically run by men or for men at all ages. What we saw a lot of was actually the mental health impacts on women and continue to see this across all age groups. And I think it sounded really like to ask about the future of work. Whenever I see politicians go out to talk about jobs, they put on high busy vests and hard hats and go and stand amongst a bunch of blokes and generally drink beer or go to the footy and you know, go, that's jobs. Jobs is construction. Jobs is building. Whereas many of the jobs of the future are in the service industries, they're in caring professions, they're in other areas, they're in health and welfare that are extremely important. So when you, you're in that, you're talking about the future economies and where we go, this issue of the maximum capability, the maximum inclusion of women at a productivity level, but also as a society, how do you see that is actually playing out? You know, how do we take that forward in the national discourse? So this is what breaks my heart about the country at the moment because we have the opportunity to create a vibrant, exciting economy that draws on the strengths of our, some of our national um, strengths, and, and it would, but it does take some purposeful leadership and some, some walking away from some of the tropes that we've assumed about this country. So at the moment, our economy is largely propped up by the iron ore price. So if we just acknowledge that, you know, we have a really strong economy because we have not been a diversified economy. We've been leveraged heavily to mining, construction, housing and the finance sector. That, that's the story of the Australian economic dream or why we've done so well. And they are all very highly leveraged to other people, other people setting prices, um, the issue of, of the economy driving housing prices, all those things But say something about where our economy is today. And we haven't taken the time in recent years to diversify our economy. We refuse to deal with the opportunities of the whole renewable sector with climate change impacts, which is a whole new economy. We haven't really sat down as a nation and unpacked the um, economic engagement of women um, and we haven't dealt with um, what, what you do with a vibrant migrant community, the great story of Australia's strength from being reliant so heavily on people who've come from other countries and still have deep cultural attachments to other places um, and other cultures. So, and, and of course, we have not dealt with the um, the lie and the scar at our heart with our constitution and the failure to recognise First Nations people. And listening to your podcast most recently with Jackie, you know we have not drawn on the great strengths of Indigenous culture and Indigenous people, First Nations peoples, to think about what kind of country we can be um, when it comes to be fully inclusive and to understand and own our history. So with all of that said and that off, that off my chest, what, what would the future look like if, if I was you know, in charge and could sort of na- try to provide well, some yeah. navigation? Well, yeah, I mean, Sam, you've, you've articulated the problems very yeah. well. What, what should we so, be doing about it? So Ian really hit it when he talked about 
the, the, the factor, the, what's, what's the future of jobs? Well, there's a whole lot we could talk about with automation, AI technology that is a driver of how you do things. But I, I'd like to go back to the fact that we could build one of the most vibrant economies around the notion of care. And care can start with care for country, care for each other, care for those that need most care. So that would be aged care, disability care, young education and care. Um, and the care profession takes us into the medical care, nursing care. And in a post-COVID world, you'd have to imagine that we are going to be learning to live with not just this pandemic, but whatever comes next that's brought about by a complicated series of factors that mean our health, our health systems are going to have to work much, much better. And so Ian pointed out that so much of our COVID recovery money, I, th- I think it was great that JobKeeper and JobSeeker came when they did, but the programs that went straight to investment in infrastructure, which was hard infrastructure. It was building things, building roads, building big things. We've heard about building car parks, all those things, apprenticeship programs, high-vis vests, hard hats. I can tell you from the data and the analysis that's been done on the economics of that, that the dollar invested there does not produce anything like the dollar that if it had been invested in the care professions would have done for future job creation, particularly at a broader position of, of who got those jobs. So increasingly women and people who come from different kinds of background. So, and it's about a tenfold difference. So if you invest in the caring professions, you create 10 times as many jobs as you do for every dollar invested in the construction um, and, and hard infrastructure areas. So I've been trying to change the language around this to say, can't we think of care so as infrastructure? When you say the caring professions, can you just define the ambit of that? Okay, I take it. So when I start from care for country, I think of everything to do with climate change, everything to do with what we've got to do around our food production services, our, co- our agricultural systems, our renewable energy services. You know, that's about caring for the future of the country. Caring for each other would be all the systems and processes of how we run our workplaces, um, the jobs around um, our mental health systems, um, and then and, and then goes into our hospital systems, our medical systems. But more importantly, it's nurses. It's the people we've seen come to the fore during a pandemic, people who have the face-to-face contact with those of us that need care in the mental health space, in the youth mental health space. Um, that, so that's – and Ian can talk to that workforce better than I could ever try. But then it's childcare. You know, we, we, we neglect the notion of childcare and early education. We treat it as something that um, is an afterthought as opposed to it being one of the great strengths if we could build the greatest early education and childcare sector with proper workforce plans. Disability care, we've got the NDIS, but we don't have a workforce plan for people who can give care, be caregivers, um, support workers, and that will be increasingly an issue for this country. And then we get to aged care. We've got a Royal Commission that led to $80 billion worth of investment that doesn't have a workforce plan attached to it. So if you're working in aged care, you don't have a sense of a decent job and a decent opportunity for a career. You are a often a part-time worker stringing together a whole lot of separate jobs to get get by, doing the work that we're not able to do ourselves in taking care of our, our elderly or, our, or our elders. And so if we don't pay respect to that, where we're putting $80 billion into a sector to try to reform it, to show basic decency, we're missing one of the greatest Um, job opportunities and to then encourage young people to think about care as a profession rather than being told that your best way to get a start is with an apprenticeship in the trades. Now, I'm not saying we don't need the trades and we don't need apprenticeships. We absolutely do. But our our persistent and kind of um, national um, obsession with that being the future of work rather than a country that could actually redefine care at the centre of its economy and show how you make money from that and create good jobs, decent jobs, and then build great community outcomes. So to come back to Ian's great advocacy on this, 
without this, we're going to have disconnected societies, unequal societies, lots of hard infrastructure, and none of the soft infrastructure or the what I'd call the scaffolding around our communities that actually creates good, good, great jobs. Now, what I haven't done, James, is talk about the arts and the creative industries. You know, I put that in the care. Talk about the arts. Care for our, caring for our intellectual curiosity, caring about what drives us at a human level, which we have not invested in through COVID. And I, you know, my daughter is an actor. She's turning herself into a fund writer so she can get a job where she actually writes fund applications for arts organisations because she can't get work as an actor. That's, I mean, that's probably fairly typical of the acting profession. But you know, we have relied on musicians, poets, um, writers. Um, to get us through this. We talk about it all the time, but we don't credit now, the sorry. arts community. I, I mean, I, I agree with you on a personal level, but I, I'm, I'm not sure that everyone does. I'm not sure that everyone would say, I have relied on uh, musicians, poets and writers to get me through this. Well, let's think about what people have been doing if they're in lockdown. Um, they're listening to things. They're watching things. So every time you watch a Netflix streamed event, if you watch anything on any of the platforms, you are watching the output of a creative team that starts with an idea that's come from a writer um, someone's producing it, someone's directing it, someone's filming it, someone's acting in it. Um, you know, we, if you're not watching something on a television screen or listening to a podcast or listening to music or craving the company of others in an arena, now we talk about it really comfortably with sport. We have, we have, we have raced to get people back into the collective feel of being a fan in a sports stadium. And we've spread some COVID while we've done that. But we've kept AFL alive. We've kept rugby league alive. We've kept the Olympics alive on the basis that these are events that define us as humans because we've got to be back together as a community, barracking or supporting the person who's in front of, in the arena. I think the same about playhouses, bars, restaurants that have got um, live music, all of those things that we do that's part of being human as well. But we in this country, we don't, get, we don't have an equivalence. We actually put the arts into a category of... I think, lefty, needy, people who are not essential in an economy. I'm not describing you, James, of course. Well, I'm, I'm describing the national kind of... a bit like of, me. No, but when did you last hear... No. <laughs> when did you last hear... A bit like me, maybe 20 years ago. When, but, but I always think... I mean, I, I kind of agree with what a lot of what you said, but then I always think I'm biased because I'm kind of in my that industry and my wife and all her family are in that industry. So maybe I've just got to... James, can I disagree with you? Can I disagree? You can. You do. All- I can't sing. I can't perform. I can't dance. <laughs> you know, it's long. Actually, I'm running out of fingers here. I can do barely anything in the creative arts. But the creative arts tells our stories. It connects us as who we are. And I think one of the most disappointing things is we went killed ourselves to have rugby league and AFL go ahead. That thing which engages young people around identity, tells stories. It tells, and I think it's we picked up with Jackie Troy. It tells stories across our generations, who we are, where it comes from, what its modern representation is, what is our response, in fact, to the COVID-type crisis. This is essential social glue and the expression of that, the emotionality of the arts. There's emotionality to footy field. You win, you go and scream dance. There's emotionality arts at another level of the anxiety, of the distress, of the way that we're feeling about the situation that needs to be expressed to drive productive behaviours. The fact that it's been grossly ignored in Australia. Since I'm on my children at home, I'm a big deal. Honourable son number one <laughs> actually won't come home from Montreal because he lives there with his partner in a city where the arts is everything. I mean, their ice hockey team is pretty good too, but they go there for the arts to participate. That is the community around the expression of that. And he makes the obvious point. That is supported financially by that city, by that government in Quebec, by its European connections, as a strong sense of identity. It underpins their communal response to challenge. 
I mean, you were objecting earlier on, James, to Sam and Myers, a little bit of preoccupation with sport and swans and whatever else, because that's so Australian, to say it's not all. Well, for other people, it is the arts. And I would say the arts is a more important national song, national story. As Jackie said, it's song lines and synapses. It's the connections between us. And the arts, I think what has happened, those who've not been able to go to the theatre, not been able to go to other things, you know, and there is a degree of privilege associated with that. That's been true. But it's also at a community level. And again, with Jackie, in a lot of traditional cultures, it's the song, it's the dance, it's the togetherness of that and the stories that go through it. And I think from a national mental health and well-being, this is something that we in Australia, because of our absolute preoccupation with sport, mm. have seen as that Farlap, Don Bradman, you know, that kind of thing. But actually, it's the, you know, it's the Henry Lawson, it's the actual other stories, it's the adversity, it's how we've coped. And, of course, the traditional stories, which we barely, barely, most of us, have our head around, I think, that join us together. So, you know, I'd just pick up on that and say I think we have to stop using the notion that the arts is elite or privileged. There are some components that are. There's no doubt about that. But the arts in daily lives, the arts in all our lives, every bit of music we hear, every bit of dance um, we, we, we see and feel in our own bodies, um, the, our kids learning music from primary school and learning to sing and being in choirs, like you know the pub choir that turned into couch choir through COVID, which was an act of collective singing, no matter what your status of how, how you could sing. Um, all these things, I think, if you were to put care and a sense of community at the heart of an economy, you wouldn't have such a binary view of will we preference sport because that's always been what we've done as a nation. We'd equivalent, we'd make them equivalents and say this is all part of the the great strength that Australia has. We have got we're not just a great sporting nation. We are an exceptionally talented, creative nation. We've known that for a very long time. And it, it as Ian says, it starts with those incredible um, uh, stories and traditions from First Nations peoples, then comes all the way through our history of all those that have come from all parts of the world to live here. Um, and we start we, we are the we are generally the go-to producers for the Olympic Games opening ceremonies because we're the best at creating the spectacle of of culture not just for ourselves but for others. So, um, and so many of our creative leaders have had to leave the country to prosper elsewhere um, and, and on the world stage. Um, and so I think whatever that form of the arts is that we attach to, we put it back into the thought around what is a, an economy built around what we admire as communities is important. Um, I've just seen a great example. So many people would have gone off to Splendour in the Grass as a music festival, as a way of communing over many years. And the organisers put that online for the first time this year called Splendour XR. It was last weekend. And they tried to create a virtual reality world of communication and connection. And you could feel it was working so hard to get the same degree of connection by people Mm. being online watching these live acts together. But, of course, all everyone wanted to do was be in a location watching music uh, having a few drinks and, and, and restoring their sense of who, who we are as humans. Um, but it was a valiant attempt to try to put back into the public's consciousness that we need to see music as much as we need to see footy. And But you don't hear about that discussed on the national level. Yep. I think it's about our, men- our mental health as well. Great thoughts, Sam. We're nearly out of time, but before you go, tell us a little bit about your volunteer work at the moment. So I am one of those very privileged people who has um, a series of jobs where my income isn't at threat um, with COVID shutdown. I can do everything virtually. I'm not a frontline worker. I'm not scrambling around to to get cash for the family. So I, you know, I'm very conscious that I have that great fortune. Um, but what I also have, I think, is an obligation. And so the number of things that I do often involve sitting around a board table with other privileged people, helping to design, govern 
think about the structure of organisations or of work. Um, and so I think you get very, very, you get trapped in that world. It's a big bubble. It's a privileged bubble. Um, and it can be quite remote from the lived experience of just what happens in all our communities. So for a number of years now, um, I've, I've always volunteered in a number of ways. But when COVID hit in the first round, a great sporting icon of our country, Craig Foster, uh, who was a socceroo, called on anyone who had any interest in sport to use their spare time when they weren't training to go and volunteer. And he called it Play for Lives. And just because I was associated with the Swans, I went and saw what he was doing at the Addison Road Community Centre in Marrickville. Been there for a very long time, one of the great stalwarts of human rights and community-centred work for, for the inner west and the broader west of Sydney. Um, and met up with Craig, and Craig was just putting together a team of volunteers to pack food boxes and to help raise funds um, and to do just day-to-day community work to help those in most need during COVID. We thought that would be for about six months, but we are still, I'm still, still going. twice a week, I'm off packing boxes. Now, those, they're, they're really oh, basic. Oh, good on you. No, they're food boxes with sweet potatoes, onions, carrots, a bit of citrus, and occasionally something special that someone's dropped off, and then put into food boxes. And we're putting out between 600 and 1,000 boxes a morning out to the people who just have no food and no access to food at the moment and a growing need through the Sydney lockdown. Um, what I love about it is, you know, we are all just there as a, a motley crew of people who want to do this and just just do it in a way that meets need. And so as we're packing boxes, our conversations are around who we all are. And it's a community I would never have been part of, but for Craig Foster saying, you know, all of us get off our bottoms and, and do something if we had the capacity. Um, but people go there from people as famous as Brian Brown. So Brian is a regular packer. He quietly packs away boxes of food to people who are out of work at the moment, people who are actually would turn up at the food pantry themselves to get the food, volunteering. Um, Craig brings along some of the um, asylum seekers who've recently been released from Manus detention centres who have just arrived in Australia, and they're turning up packing boxes for other people in this country. Um, and they're not doing it for any other reason than they want to say thank you to the country for welcoming them. And so our conversations, COVID distance with masks, all the right things, are about a different level of community. And I think my mental health at the moment is sustained by turning up um, a couple of days a week to have those conversations and simply do the doing, get my head out of the theoretical and straight into what does it mean to be part of this community and actually see the need up front and then see the intention and the joy and the graciousness of the volunteers. And I don't mean me, I mean those that actually have greatest need, volunteering to help others as an act of, of grace. It, it's, I mean, I'd encourage anyone who wants to get involved with Addy Road or, or any organisation, this is what this moment calls for, is for us to, to actually make this about a very human experience and get on with the help. And great to, great to finish on that because you've been talking about a lot of really big picture stuff that we should be doing as a nation, but great to end with a really clear, specific thing. And again, and Ian's talked about this uh, many times before, the volunteer... Uh, well, th- those who receive the the voluntary work benefit, but the volunteer, as you mentioned, benefits too. You were saying how great it is for your own mental health. Um, can I add so one a thing, wide James, ranging discussion. Can I, add, can I add one last thing? Yeah, I'm sorry, James. It's just because um, I think it's really important that those people who are in big systems design, who are at the top of our system at the moment, particularly with COVID, trying to work out how you actually work with communities to suppress a virus how you think about who needs most, where and when, what systems are required, what services required. People sitting at the top of those service delivery systems in this country, I don't think know 
actually how to connect that with what happens on the ground. And so I don't, you know, it shouldn't just be famous people turning up. You know, Brian Brown does it because he actually feels it's a very important part of his mental health. But I'd love it if people didn't just turn up to do that for the photo op. But the people running our systems quietly, without any publicity, mm. turned up at some of these centres and heard the stories of what goes wrong in a system. I'll give you a quick example. In Sydney at the moment, Addison Road Community Centre receives crisis calls from people in communities where English is not a first language who are receiving texts on their phone from Department of Health giving them stay-at-home orders in English, and they don't know what it says. And so they ring a community centre to say, I'm desperate, is anyone there can speak Cantonese, Vietnamese? I need someone to tell me what's going on. So our leaders tell us that the system of stay-at-home orders is there and that we should all comply, but you talk to a person receiving a text in English who wants to do the right thing and no support. And so I, the more people who are designing systems... Have, they've got yeah, to go like, and actually do that, and I, I know it's a kind of it's. A, I'm labouring the point, but right now, oh, it's very important. It's we've got and to do every organisation should do it. I hate to end this fascinating and wide ranging episode by talking about McDonald's, but a friend of mine used to work at McDonald's, and and he he was in management, and every month he had to go go and do a day in the store, and it's the same thing. Just it's all about the customers. You can have the best principles you like. You go and see what it's like for the customers, and you know how to improve improve things so that's a that's a really great point um sam thanks so much once again fascinating wide-ranging conversation about where we are where we should be how we can get there if you've got any questions or comments or would like to suggest further topics for us to wrestle around with uh, do send us an email at minding your mind two at gmail.com that's the number two uh, and Minding Your Mind is supported by Future Generation Global and the generous philanthropic donations from families who support research into youth mental health. Further help is available from Headspace, Beyond Blue, Head to Health and Lifeline. Google them or you can call Lifeline on 13 Talk to you next time.